Hello and welcome to Orwellian and all the other stuff. But uh, today we, we, we know the score. By yes, now. today's a bit different because this week, everyone, we are doing as we please. Number one. What does that mean? Well, Orwell wrote these essays called "As I Please." Once he became a successful journalist. And we're no, by no means implying no. that we have become a successful podcaster. No, we're, no, we're but, definitely not successful <laughs> podcasters. But we're not, uh, Wow, number 59. Number 59. That is something to mention. We have become number 59 or number 64, depending on which source you consult. We'll go with 59. 59. Uh, 59th most popular English language podcast in the category of books in, on the Japanese iTunes. Between the minutes of 11.13 and 11.14. Starting with... On Tuesday mornings. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we've been doing this for a while, and Simon and I have decided that, like Orwell, we're going to do an episode where we just talk about whatever we like, as we please, number one. So, Simon, how are you doing? I'm good, mate. I'm a bit Oliver Twist, if I'm being absolutely honest. We decided to have a Russian night tonight. So most times we record this podcast, we'll, we'll cook something up, eat, have a few drinks before we record. Make a night of it, because we just see each other on this occasion. Right? Yes. And tonight we decided to have a Russian night. So you bought love, a load of lovely Russian foods from a supermarket you know. And I made some borscht from an oh, old family delicious. recipe. Very delicious. And you bought a lovely bottle of vodka, and you just had a glass. But I admittedly have had a few more. So You've had you... enough to keep the Red Army going. Yeah, yeah. Enough to fuel a Red Army tank, I'd say. So I think you're going to be the coherent wordsmith. So How are you? I'm not bad. Um, oh God, I've had a tough week. You know, back to work and up every morning at six. Similar to a lot of people these days, you know, I had a year of working from home and uh, that was great for my house husband. House husband, yes, cooking, cleaning, but uh, doing the laundry. Yeah. But uh, also, you know, it was great for my work life balance. But when I got back into the classroom, our listeners know that we both work in education. When I, when I got back into the classroom, it gave me a buzz. It felt great to get back in front of real human beings rather than names in boxes on a screen. Uh, you had a similar experience, didn't you, Simon? I do. I did. Yeah, I don't do as much teaching as you, but um, I do a few seminars, and it was great. Yeah, I, I enjoyed being back in a work environment around people, being around humans again, and you know, getting that buzz of the atmosphere. I'm sure that wear off really quickly. But it's been nice. Like you start to appreciate things like work <laughs> during a pandemic, don't you? And, and 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 I even appreciated the commutes. I know going to the train station, getting on the train, and don't you find that when you appreciate your work, you appreciate your leisure time a lot more as well, and you really use it carefully. Today we've decided to talk about whatever we please. This is something Orwell did. Orwell, when he got his own column, he, he just wrote about whatever he liked from week to week. And this week we decided we would like to talk about whatever we like. Yeah. Um, Simon, bef- with, without it sounding very egotistical, yes. within an Orwellian yes. context. We're going to get back to Orwellian yeah. themes. 
First of all, though, Simon, I'd really like to hear about the unique cultural experience you had last Saturday, I think it was. <laughs> so last Saturday I went to, well, we live in Tokyo, Lewis and I, and I went to Disney Sea, which is a branch of Disneyland. And the, by the way, I should mention it's the only Disney Sea in the world. Oh, how many Disneys are there? There's Orlando, Los Angeles, Angeles um, Tokyo, Tokyo, Shanghai, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Hong Kong, Paris, Paris. So six, six. So I went to the only Disney Sea, and um, I didn't. Well, I didn't enjoy it. Really? No, not really. Did you take my advice and go to the? Did you go to the Alchemist's? Uh, cat, you know, the Alchemist's chamber in the castle. Well, but here's the thing, Lewis. So I visited Disney Sea in in the pandemic, and they had this very old system where you pay full price for a ticket, but then once you enter, you had to, on the Disney app, reserve each attraction, each bar, each restaurant, everything. And once you reserve it, you're put within a lottery, and if you win the lottery, you're told what time you can go there. Now. Yes or no question, do you think I have the Disney app on my telephone? No. Correct. So it took me an hour to realise that I needed to have the Disney app, and that took me another hour to work out how to download the Disney app. By the time I've done that, and I've put myself in for the lottery for all the different attractions, bars, restaurants, I kind of missed out. Mm. So the what I've generally seen as the three best rides at Disney Sea, I were fully booked for the whole day. I couldn't go to them, so I fell back on Plan B, what which was just to go to one of the bars. And you recommended the Roosevelt Bar. The Roosevelt Bar. So I thought I reserve Roosevelt Bar, fully booked for the whole day. But being a trooper, I went there anyway. Tried to sneak in, got caught. Told I couldn't no, enter. No. And then I pointed out to them that half the tables inside are empty. Could you just let me in? They said, well, we have to, we could only go to half capacity because of coronavirus. Despite the fact the queue outside, there was about 300 people all stood within five centimetres of each other. So I couldn't even go. And that was the only bar open in the entire resort. So I couldn't even get drunk. Most of the good rides were closed. So I spent the whole day just walking around. Now, the architecture is quite impressive because they have a mini Venice, a mini Florence, a castle like you mentioned, and various other things. And that was quite interesting for about an hour. But then the rest, I just found it very boring. You spent, you had an hour and then you thought, where's the beer? And there was one stall open selling flat beer in a plastic cup. And I very much partook beer in that activity. Oh. But for each time, you could only buy one at a time and it was about a 45 minute wait. To get to the front of that each time. So. Beer in a plastic cup as well. That's one of the worst kinds yeah, of beer it, you can buy. It was it? better than sitting on a teacup in Aladdin World, mate. And the castle you spoke of was uh, half closed. Was it? Every other room, they closed off for some reason. Now, when you're following a route in which you have to solve a puzzle, closing half the rooms in that puzzle makes it very difficult to solve said puzzles. So. This is unfortunately a sign of the times, because Simon, I, if you had gone there before the pandemic, I, I think you would have had fun. Yeah, I, I reckon I'll go back post-pandemic mm. with a group of friends. And... We have to be optimistic. One yeah. day this will be over, and uh, 
you know, future generations will listen to our podcast and in the same way that, you know, people listen to radio shows recorded during the war and think, uh, <laughs> think oh, oh, isn't it good that it ended? But yeah. uh, uh, I'm sure one day you will be able to enjoy Disney Sea to its full. I'm sure I will. So a question for you, Lewis, like we had a Russian dinner tonight. We decided to have a Russian theme and it stems from you. So tell me about what is the uh, Russian influence upon your life and your experiences and thoughts about Russia. Well, as listeners might have picked up before, I have a Russian spouse and uh, this has given me a, a decent familiarity with Russian culture. Now, when I was younger, I always looked on Russia as an interesting country that I might visit one day, but uh, you know, would never have a close connection to. But then I, I met a, I met my Russian partner at university, and uh, I've been to Russia three, four, five times. I've been twice in the winter, so I, I you know, I've been in Moscow in minus. So you've never been before you met your wife. No, no. Okay. Um, so I've been to Russia, I think twice in the winter, three times in the summer, three or four times in the summer. Which do you prefer? Oh, I couldn't compare them because they're such different experiences. Mm. Uh, I can tell you, uh, the last time I was in Moscow in winter, it was the winter of 2016 to 17, and it was colder then than it was when Napoleon invaded Russia. Really? <laughs> yes, it was minus 28, 30. When did records begin with temperatures? Um, I think kind of beginning of the 19th century, uh, around then. But, uh, I mean, because well, he invaded Russia in what, 1810? 12? 1812? Okay. Um, certainly, I know that when I went, it was the coldest Russian winter since the 1870s. The last time I was there in winter, uh, and I, I, you know, I'm not going to bring politics into this because the world is in a very fraught state at the moment. Bloody Trump! I knew it made the Russian winter cold. <laughs> <laughs> but Russia is a is a beautiful country with a a wonderful culture, and it's it's taught me so much about you know history and seeing history from the eyes of another culture, learning about their experience of the Second World War and, and all of that. So, yes, I'm, I'm very close to Russian culture. Uh, Simon, tell us a bit about your experience of vodka. I, I've had a bad history of vodka. When I went to university, when I played in a rugby team and with various guys, went to watch rugby matches, Vodka was very much a part of the culture. So for each try scored, we would have to down a vodka, etc., etc. And by my early 20s, I grew to really despise it to the extent where just the sight of it made me feel nauseous. And I didn't drink it for about 15 years until I did a... I went on a very long bicycle trip where I cycled the Silk Road. And by the nature of that, I had to pass through a lot of the ex-USSR, like Kyrgyzstan... Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Georgia, Azerbaijan. And throughout traveling through those countries, I was pulled aside by various groups of locals and made to drink vodka. And despised it, but realized it wasn't making me nauseous anymore. And I just 
drunk. When this happened, I mean, what kind of food were they giving you? Were they giving you food when you drank? Um, well, isn't vodka made from potatoes? Mm. So that was it. They were giving you potatoes? Yeah, liquid potatoes. There was no food. Soup? No, nothing. People would call me over and they would toast to my health, toast to their health, toast to my trip, toast to my toenail, <laughs> toast to the fourth hair on my scalp. <laughs> I spent a lot of time, particularly in Georgia, cycling completely pissed. I told you a story earlier on about how I was just about to tackle this big mountain near Bojormi, which is famous for its spring water. Yes, I've had a lot of very lovely Bojormi spring water. Yeah. They still sell it in Russia. Well, cycle a day down the road from Bojormi and you get into a very, a much more isolated part of Georgia where you have to go up this huge mountain and there's this plateau which has a, a village up there. My, my plan was to climb up that plateau on my bike and then camp out in the village. It was a really hard climb, and at the foot of it, this group of men at this makeshift store, which was selling water, called me over, and I got a bottle of water, and they said, they insisted, which meant, <laughs> have a drink of vodka with us. And that turned into about eight shots, and a, a skinny cyclist with an empty stomach. I was absolutely off my cotton mitts. How, how old were you at the time? Oh, I was 35? 35? Not long ago, then. No, not long ago. And um, I tell you what, though, Lewis, I went up that mountain like a chimney sweep on heat. <laughs> I was up there fast. And it was, I, tell you, I thought, is this the trick? <laughs> so I just carry around a bottle of vodka, and every time I get to the bottom of a, an incline, and just have a swig and then go, but then by the time I got to the top, I hit the wall and I was absolutely dead. Well, that's when you want to hit the wall, when you're at the top and it's just yeah, gravity. Yeah, try there. putting up a tent. When you're... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and um, the last time I drank vodka was your, your birthday. Which was 29th birthday. 29th birthday back in August. And I lost my mobile telephone God. and woke up to this awful sight some pasty ginger sleep spread eagled on my floor. <laughs> I wonder who that was. Yeah, who was that, Lewis? <laughs> what do we know of Orwell and alcohol? That's a good point, Orwell and alcohol. I We're going to do a podcast yes. that the, the, the moon... We're going to get onto the moon underwater. Which is about drinking in a pub. Yes. Was he notorious for his drinking? No, I don't, I don't think reading he was. Well... If you read down in Paris and London, he has a few pretty good nights with his Russian, well, speaking of Russian, with his Russian emigrant Tell friend. me about it, because I've not read that book. Yeah, he has, a, he has a few nights, and one of the nights he gets so drunk, he, he wakes up sans possession, without his belongings, which have been taken by, uh, in the book, it said an Italian immigrant. But then later in life, he admitted it was some floozy he had met out on, on the night out. And had uh, seduced him, had her way with him, and then had her way with his possessions. Has that ever happened to you, Lewis? No. Uh, I'm afraid I've lived a very uh, dull and white bread life, and uh, that hasn't happened to me. I've lived a very uh, black bread life in comparison. Well, do tell. I've unfortunately never been used and abused by a woman in that way. 
Um, who was listening? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Open to offers. Yeah, you can steal from me. As much as you want. So what vices did Orwell have? Well, we can certainly say he was a very heavy smoker. One day we're going to get onto his essay, Books versus Cigarettes, which I know you'll have a lot to say about, Simon. Does um, smoking influence the onset of tuberculosis? Can't help, can it? It doesn't cause it, but it, it, it certainly It's, it's not going to make your lungs stronger. Yeah, because for those that don't, don't know, that was the... Um, the cause of Orwell's death at a very premature age was when, tuberculosis. When did he get tuberculosis? Did he get it through his years of tramping, living rough, or, or, or was it exacerbated by the injury he got in the Spanish Civil War? I don't know the answer to that question. I just know that to, to cure it, he went up to Jura, or to ease the symptoms, he went up to Jura in Scotland, and the consequence of his trip up there was the writing of 1984. So if it was one good thing to have come from his illness, it was that. But Certainly we know from his essays, I mean, we'll get on to this later, but I think his essays just got better and better uh, the closer he got to the end. Going back to his vices, I think he was a bit of a womaniser as well. He had a lot of affairs. Well, did you ever... Uh, he was rejected a lot as well. Yes, right? rejected he, a lot. In one of his letters to a good friend of his, he wrote, if there's one wish I had about my time, it was that I would be, I could have been more attractive to women. That's what a lot of writers say, isn't it? Mm. But it seemed to have really affected him that. I mean, aesthetically, we're probably not the best judges, but he wasn't a classically handsome man. I, I guess it was his intellect that would have attracted women to him. Correct me if I'm wrong. I seem, in my experience, speaking as a ginger man, <laughs> heterosexual women seem to like dark-haired men a lot. And he was dark-haired. He was very tall. Women, heterosexual women tend to like dark-haired men. Cosimodo um, was dark-haired. <laughs> <laughs> and he had a Latin name. It didn't work out for him. Did you ever hear about his relationship with uh, Jacintha Buddicum? Or Cosimodo? No, or I knew it. The guy we're doing Philander. a podcast about. Oh, him. <laughs> I didn't know. Okay, you probably won't get this from the edit, but we had to pause then because Lewis took out his handkerchief, which brushed past his pocket watch on his way to blowing his nose, which is something I haven't seen from my previous life in 1812, <laughs> before my reincarnation seven times over into um, what I am now. God, you know... <laughs> Jesus, Lewis. Three, three years ago... I'm going to bottle you up and put you in a bloody museum. <laughs> three years ago, blowing your nose with another person in the room wouldn't have meant anything, but now... I, I wouldn't mind now if you just got a tissue, but your bloody handkerchief from <laughs> your pocket. And I just saw your pocket watch... I mean, Jesus, Lewis. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, but hold on, just let me take some snuff. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, By what time is it? Well, how, did you, how does your sundial work at this time of night? <laughs> All right, so when Orwell was a young child, he was friends with three siblings. One of those siblings was a young woman called Jacintha Buddicombe. Jesus, 
You couldn't make that name up. No. It's a very Dickensian yeah, name, isn't it? Very Edwardian, certainly. And he, I mean, ch- I think you could basically say Orwell and Jacinta, childhood sweethearts. And um, they had a rather fraught relationship because just before Orwell... She stole his pick-a-mix. Well, just before Orwell was about to go to... Just before Orwell was about to go to Burma, he he went a bit too far, and uh, would you? It, it was Orwell's Me Too moment. Frankly, would you care to divulge? Well, he he made his move, and it was quite aggressive. He went too far, and he was without consent, and it was very much Orwell's Me Too moment, and. And how do we know about this event? From from him or from her? I think it is recorded in her diary. There are certainly a lot of articles online. Uh, so about she this. published a diary on the basis of having been a childhood sweetheart of one of after Britain's she after he writers. was dead. Yeah. Um, I'm never too keen on people publishing diaries on other people after they're dead. Well, yes, but... Without the right to respond. She did get in touch with him before he died. He was in the hospital with tuberculosis, 1948-1949. They exchanged a couple of letters. He was saying, oh, you know, I really regret what I did, but you were my greatest love. She was actually the inspiration for Julia in 1984. Really? Um, But uh, a Me Too moment in the 1920s? What would that translate as in 2021, well, 100 years later? He, but going in for a, a kiss, like no, a, no. a kiss on the lips in, in those days it, would have been very... From what I've read, he was going for, you know, I'm going away to Burma. I don't know when I'm going to see you again. I think he was, it wasn't what she wanted. And yeah. and she she inspired the character of Julia. And but in her diaries, how did she portray this experience? Did she portray it as um, something that she was very uncomfortable with? Or... Something that she was in, uncomfortable okay. with, that she felt was aggressive on his part. Uh, I'm I'm not going to make excuses. Did he ever apologise to her? Did she ever mention that? Or did he even understand the consequences of his actions. I think he understood the consequences of his actions. He knew that he'd overstepped the mark, but I do think it was very much... When he wrote letters to her a year, two years before he was dying, it was very much... He was still kind of blaming her and saying, you were very cruel to me, and why didn't you write to me when I was in Burma? And uh, A lot of people know about that. It's It's a big thing in Orwell's biography. And it's quite um, salient in today's environment as well. The, the thing is, today, people are quite rightly called out for their aggressive sexual actions. But I do wonder how many figures from history in today's world would would have no gravitas as a result of their private lives. Well, culture... Or would they not have had such private lives, knowing what they know today? In today's environment, unwanted advances have always been a a horrifying thing for the victim. You're right. It's um, suffering no longer has to be silent as it was in the past. Yes, yes, yes. 
So I think it's important for us to mention this, despite uh, our whole podcast being called Orwellian, and he's clearly a bit of a hero of ours. We're not trying to. He's do a, flawed. Yes. Most people are flawed, and we're not trying to do a hagiography. He was no saint. He was a human being. But we admire him and we admire his writing. And we certainly won't cancel him on the basis of one event. This is something that I'm very, I've become very concerned about in the past couple of years is no matter how problematic the writer, particularly writers, no matter how problematic they are, we always need to look for something we can take from them, something that is that speaks to the wider human condition. That's how I feel. Yeah, I agree. And people who expose themselves to portraying the human condition are often going to go into areas which not everybody's going to find appropriate nor attractive. And we're we're walking this fine line then, aren't we, between... Is somebody saying something which is contrarian to what society now believes to be acceptable? Or are they just exploring a a paradigm of human nature that we shouldn't ignore? Does that make sense? Yes, makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Simon, I think we need to go back to basics. Sorry to be a bit John Major. (laughs) How did you discover Orwell? I don't want to dilute this conversation. I can't remember exactly. I seem to remember at school he came up, but I definitely didn't take an interest. My enlightenment with regards to literature came after school. I remember just cruising through my school years and literature classes, finding it very, very boring. We read um, Of Mice and Men, my Steinbeck. Steinbeck. My, in, one of my dad's favourite writers. Well, it's funny you say that because I read it for my GCSEs, which for non-British people is around 15, 16. And I thought, oh God, how boring is this? Read it again at 35. One of the greatest pieces of literature ever written, which goes to show, doesn't it, how, how things change. Well, that reminds but, me very much of how, you know, I'm speaking to my dad, who's now in his late 60s a a few weeks ago and he was saying god you know i look back at steinbeck and i think that's some of the greatest literature i've ever read Mm -hmm. he was a great writer and and through him i learned a lot about that period of american history like the, the dust bowl and the great migration west but it was a similar thing with Orwell. i'm pretty sure we covered animal farm at school And I just found it, I didn't get it, I found it boring, but I went through the motions. But um, later, I really started to get into literature post-university, so my, let's say from 22 to 26 was my great enlightenment when it comes to literature. And I, the first, my exposure to Orwell was down and out in Paris and London, and swiftly followed by... At the age of... It would have been 23. So, towards the end of university, then? No, I'd finished. I'd finished university, and I was working at the Victorian Albert Museum in London, living in Wimbledon. And I read it, and it had a profound impact on me. And I immediately put the book down upon completing it, and went to Waterstones, 
other bookshops are available, and bought uh, Road to Wigan Pier. Read that, and I was astounded by that book as well. Fantastic. And then bought um, Homage to Catalonia, which sparked an intense interest in Spain and Spanish history, which I followed up with other books. And a year or two later, I went to live in Spain. So would you say, in a way, that Orwell led you to Spain? On um, 101%. Orwell led me to Spain. Although, funnily enough, I ended up living in Madrid, not Barcelona. The first place I visited in Spain was Barcelona, but upon getting there, didn't like it. Kind of like the Disneyland of Spain, I felt. It's a beautiful city with a great history, but because of that, it's very touristy. Yeah, yeah. sorry to sound pretentious, but it really is. Whereas Madrid is a bit more low-key, and I, I really fell in love with that place and ended up living there. But, so yeah, that's my early... So I, I'd read most of his non-fiction... And then the first fiction book I read was Animal Farm. Loved it. And we'll probably talk about Animal Farm and its relation its relation to tonight's theme, which we could call Russia, because it basically is a satirical take on Stalin, isn't mm. it? Or, and the process of the revolution. Yeah, revolutionary Russia. And then after Animal Farm, I finally read 1984. And then reading 1984 was the moment where I was like, yeah, this guy is my, he's, a, he's in my Mount Rushmore of writers. How about you? Well. I, I guess yours is going to be earlier than me, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I tried to read 1984. Do you remember um, around early 2000s, the BBC did this. Uh, the fast show. No, no, no. It was after the fast show. It was this week, <laughs> I have mostly been, been reading George, George Orwell's 1984. <laughs> it wasn't that. It was a bit after that. It's um, a bit boring. <laughs> it was after that when the BBC did this. It was the Big Read. Do you remember the BBC Big Read? With Richard and Judy. No, it wasn't Richard and Judy. <laughs> I don't remember them um, promoting something like that. They did this thing called the Big Read when they... They were trying to uh, collate the the greatest works of English literature, and they did a like a show going from like number one hundred to number one. Who decided that? It was based on sort of uh, like polling of the public, or I don't trust public polling. Well, we know what happened with BBC and public polling, don't yeah. we? In that time, but they were doing that, and I remember. They mentioned 1984, and as a 13-, 14-year-old boy, I tried to read 1984. But, as you know, and as a lot of listeners may know, there's not much for a 13-, 14-year-old boy in 1984. But my real introduction to George Orwell, Simon, was when my brother read me a, an essay from George Orwell. I've always said that I've actually, embarrassingly, as a George Orwell fan, I have more experience of his essays than I do of his fiction. I've never read 1984 all the way through. But this is the great thing about our dynamic. So you've read most of his essays. I've never read his essays, but I've read all of his fiction, and I've read all of his non-fiction book-length works. And I'm very it's, much it's fascinating. the opposite. Mm. So 
when I was a teenager, my brother read me Bookshop Memories, which I hope we'll get onto one day. It's his sure. memoirs of working in bookshops in London before the war. Each time we record an essay, the listeners probably aren't aware of this, but we do something behind the scenes related to it. Tonight, I'm drinking a lot of vodka. We were drinking an awful lot of tea for the first podcast. So what, what are we going to do for the bookshop one? Sit in a library. Well, I mean, you and I, we're fans of second-hand bookshops, aren't we? we we've been to the bookshops in Jimbocho in, yeah. uh, in Tokyo. And I'm sure we, we want to do a, lo- a podcast in a different location someday, don't we? And yes. If we lead one of those bookshops to believe we're more popular and important than we really are, I'm sure they'll be happy to let us record there. I'm, I certainly know some of our fans have been quite uh, keen Fan. on the idea. I, I know our <laughs> fan has been quite keen on the idea of us doing a, a podcast from a pub. Uh, yeah. Which, you know, in the circumstances <laughs> will be the, uh, the the single British theme pub that we can find. We, I, we would genuinely be, deli- be delighted to do a, a podcast from a pub, but I'm sure everyone who's listening who's ever been to a pub can understand the difficulties in that. It would have to be pre-opening hours, wouldn't it? Yes. And ju- which, by our protocol for how we do this podcast, would be awkward. Yeah, we would have to drink. We could certainly go to a pub and then record this podcast, couldn't we? Maybe after hours. We certainly be, you know, in our previous lives, we've been to a lot of pubs, so we could... So, your introduction to Orwell. My introduction to Orwell. So, my brother... Read you... Read me one Christmas. Read you or introduced you to? Read me because one Christmas... uh, we did a kind of Victorian style Christmas with our friends where we read each other uh, some special, you know, passages from literature that were special to us. And uh, my brother read the essay Bookshop Memories because at the time he had been working in a bookshop. How many brothers do you have? Uh, three. And which brother is this? With in... my middle brother. And he's an Orwell fan? He's an Orwell fan, very well read. But continues to be an Orwell fan? Continues to be an Orwell fan. Uh, continues to be very well read. Is he our fan? He might be our <laughs> fan. Uh, continue, I, I know he listens to this. So it's him. <laughs> He's uh, the one. <laughs> he, he, read, uh, he read me Bookshop Memories because, you know, this was like late 2000s. But read the whole essay? Yes, whole essay. It's not what very what if somebody chose War and Peace? <laughs> It, it was, was a, very, a long Christmas. Very short essay. He wor- was working in a bookshop at the time. The funny thing was, Where else? Uh, in Edinburgh. Uh, at what type of bookshop? At Waterstones. It was, was a chain a... bookshop, kind of like Waterstones or uh, Black's Bookworld. Was, Black? was that an outdoor Somewhere shop? like that. One of these places that sells remainders. You know. Did, did he enjoy it? It sounds idyllic to me. I think. He, re- he enjoyed it to a certain extent. I think it sounds it, uh, idyllic to the people who've never worked in a bookshop before. Okay, yeah. um, was it his full-time job or a part-time It was job? his full-time job yeah. at the time. So if you said to me, what would you like to do if you weren't doing what you're doing now? Working in a bookshop well, would same be pretty high up there. Yeah. Same for me. But at that time, he, he read this essay because it, 
it was a, a great uh, great amusement to him that you know he was working in a bookshop in the early 2000s and a lot of the things that Orwell was writing they were recognizable yeah. a guy working Still in a relevant. bookshop in the 30s and a guy working in the bookshop 70 80 years later so Orwell worked in a bookshop yes before the war before he went to the Spanish Civil War. And then he wrote, and that essay is based on... Yes, yes. And I hope we'll get on to that. That's interesting. One, yeah. So that was my introduction to Orwell. And then I got onto his essays. I went to my the library in my high school, and I found a, exactly the same selection of essays that you and I use for this, uh, for this podcast. By the way, Simon, the selection of essays, as listeners know, we use the Everyman edition of Orwell's Selected Essays. Simon, do you know how much that is retailing for on Amazon at the moment? I don't, because you very generously gave it to me as a gift. 90 quid. You should never tell a man how much his gift is. Simon, I got that for you. <laughs> I got that for you last year yeah. when it was about 30 quid, and now it is out of print. Six months later, it's out of print. It went up in the show. It's not just a Trumponian influence <laughs> upon society, <laughs> which knows? has made the price of Orwellian literature go up. Who knows? But it... Why did it go out of print? I don't know. I, I know exactly why it went out of print, because the book, as incredible as it is, is the size of a building brick. And people these days don't read. And they certainly don't buy books which are that big. And collections of essays as well. So that's why by a man who by a man who wrote in the forties. Oh mate, how utterly depressing is that? So that was my introduction to Orwell. My brother reading me those essays, and and that is why listeners will remember how I've often said, "Oh, it's very embarrassing," but I've never read Animal Farm. I've never read Nineteen Eighty Four. I'm much more familiar with George Orwell's essays. And than I am with his fiction or his longer works in non-fiction like, like uh, Down and Out in Paris and London or Homage to Catalonia. That's my connection to George Orwell. Reading this man and thinking, yes, this man is aligned with the way I view the world, particularly with his essays about British culture, his essays about pubs, his essays about... British literature, his essays about uh, British politics, that sort of thing. So why don't you get round to reading his novels? Is it that is it a question of time or a question of are you sometimes a little bit weary of the impact you know something could have upon you? You're quite right there because I know very much the effect that Orwell's essays will have on me. I know that they will make me think, God, we're in a we're in a terrible state at yeah. the moment. Um, it is also time, though. I tried to read his Spanish essays when I was at university, but again, you know, I, I had various course books to read and all of that, so... I'd, I'd like to hear, Simon, more about your experience with Orwell. I know you read Homage to Catalonia. I know you read Down and Out in Paris in London. In 2020, yeah. summer, 
I gave you this collection of his essays. Had you read his shorter works before I gave you those? I'd never read a single essay before you gave me the book on the collection of his essays. Never read a single one. And to be honest with you, as I was reading his novels and his longer works of non-fiction, I wasn't even aware he'd written essays. In his longer works of non-fiction, he never mentions previous works, never mentions essays he's written. But as you and I have been going through these essays, it's fascinating for me how they are all precursors to his longer works. And when you read his longer works, when you get round to it, you'll realise this is basically just an extended version of something I've read before, one of these essays, and it's fascinating. But when it comes to the impact of Orwell, I am, for better want of a term, pretty much a socialist with my political views. And I don't want that to influence people's opinions whilst listening to this podcast, because we make a big point of trying to look at things from both sides. We in an Orwellian way. In an Orwellian way, and we sometimes play devil's advocate. And I hope people are able to pick up on those nuances and how we debate these issues. But um, to my core, I'm a socialist. And as I was discovering the, the meaning of what it means to be a socialist, or let's just say for a wider audience on the left of the political spectrum, it was at the time I was reading the said non-fictional works of George Orwell. And he has had a profound influence, like no other, upon my political leanings. Well, if I may say so, you are very much a public schoolboy, like Orwell, you are a public yeah. schoolboy who yeah. is a socialist and who has decided to become a socialist. Well, I'm a bit different to Orwell in that. Yes, Orwell I went was to a public class. Yeah. You, you were not. Yeah, like I was brought up working class. So my my parents were both born very working class, and through their respective jobs, managed to work their way up to still working class, but comfortable, more comfortable than they had been as children, and I went to a public school because my dad was in the military. And when I was 10 years old or nine years old, we were posted to live in Hong Kong. And my, do my dad's job there was helping prepare Hong Kong for the changeover to, in 1997 to, to China. And back then, when you were a member of the British forces living abroad, the army would pay for your kids to go to a boarding school back in the UK if they were of a relative educational level. So, so at the time, I was, without meaning to be boastful, within my age range, relatively uh, achieving academically at the age of 10. <laughs> so it was suggested that I would be sent to boarding school back in England, where they thought I could do a lot better. And I met a couple of kids who were at boarding school and they'd come back to Hong Kong for the summer holiday. And they kept on telling me all these stories about how they went go-karting and rafting and stuff. And it just stuck in my head. So I went back to my mum and dad and said, 
I want to go to boarding school. And they were like, are you sure? It's like, yeah. So it was, it was never your parents' dream that they would, you know, my, my child will do better than me, my child will go to public school. I'm sure it was their intention that my child will do better than me, and but you'll have to ask them. They've never said to me they ever... I think it was a bit of a surprise to them. And then I think my dad went back to work and looked into the avenues available, and then him and I went back to England, and we went to... Diff- I can't remember, maybe three different schools? And I was blissfully unaware of what was going on. Three different public schools. Yeah. And we end- I ended up going to the one which was eight miles away from where I've been growing up in Lincolnshire, um, in Stamford, Lincolnshire. And yeah, so from the age of 11 until 18, I I went to a public school. So Eric Blair, or as we now know him, George Orwell, came from an affluent family. And he went to Eton, which is kind of the first division of public schools. And I would say mine was more... Third division of but I must schools. add in here that he he only had his advantages because his father father was part of the British Imperial administration. So in quite India. similar then, mm. quite similar. But I get the impression from his writings that his parents were middle class, and their entire outlook upon life was middle class. Mm. Yeah, my 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 dad grew up on. Um, his dad was a. Signal post Second World War, he served in the war. He was a signaler, and then after the um, what was it, the Beecham, the Beecham, the railway thing, yeah, the Beecham cuts, the Beecham cuts, lost his job as that. And then, from my recollection, was a farmhand. And I, I, you know, I've heard a lot of stories about my dad growing up about how times were tough, and I've never experienced that. But hmm. how about you, like? I've always got the impression you're very middle class. So how come you never went to a private school? I would always say, well, Scotland for a start. and uh, It was probably free. Um, <laughs> I would always say I, I've been very solidly lower middle class. My The joke in my family is that my mother had a colonial childhood and my father had a middle class childhood. <laughs> Mum's father, well, both my parents listen to this and they're going to be bloody angry when they hear all this. But um, so Well, they can write in <laughs> and, and correct they, they all know, the details. They know the email address. Uh, so, uh, well, they could even send in a, a voice message correcting the date and we'll be happy to edit it into the next episode. Mum's grandparents were proper Scottish working class, like, miners. See, your mum's Scottish and your Mm. father's from Surrey. Mum's Scottish, dad's from Surrey, and then further back, uh, my ancestors are from Scottish, sorry, my English ancestors. Northern India. My my English ancestors are from the West Country. And... uh, so mum's family, very much Scottish, lowland, middle class, miners, basically. Good old picks. Sort of. And, and East Coast and, and miners. And, and, uh, Is it true what they say about the Scottish lowlands, that it has no relevance upon the history of the planet? <laughs> well... <laughs> <laughs> 
Depend, depends how uh, how important you think Protestantism is, I suppose. No, I'm only kidding. Do you, um, do you know Jim Telfer? He's a Scottish rugby union mm. ex-player and very famous Scottish rugby ex-coach. And one, he was a really famous coach of the British and Irish Lions in rugby union. And he's from the Lowlands of Scotland. And he said, um, for those who say we're not real Scots, I tell you, we're the ones that have borne the brunt of countless invasions from those bloody English over the years. Well, true. You know, we're more Scots than anybody. When the Lowlanders, when the English come up, where do they come to first? They come to the borders, then they come to the Lowlands. It takes them a long time to get to the Highlands. So, yeah. uh, so my mother's family were very much Lowlanders and uh, sort of Fife area. Dad was from Surrey. His ancestors were from uh, say, say. the uh, West Country. Um, the fact is, I am very British in my makeup. Scotland, England. So, so your surname's Hurst. Hurst. So your father. So where, what's what's the origin of the name Hurst? Hurst means a wooded hill. In Saxon. In Saxon. In Saxon. My mother's family are Hay, which is a Norman name. So what would the Hursts have done then? It would have been lumberjacks on the hill or Or had a farm on the hill, f- I suppose. Could but, have been a farm or and, just and if you consider the, fort. the name Hurst implies there are so many places in the southeast of England ending in Hurst, like Brocklehurst yeah. or Elmhurst or places like that. We are people who stayed put in the wo- in the on wood the wooded on the hill, hill. <laughs> uh, and I think that really describes me very well. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, how did we get onto this? So your, your mother's maiden name's Hay. Hay is that Scottish? Is that very Celtic? Well, again, it's Norman. So how's it spelled? H A Y, which would have originally probably been H A Y E. Eh. Eh. Eh, you. Eh, you, laddie. <laughs> so, um, yes, I've always been very aware of being a mongrel. Uh, is, that, is that a wrong thing to say? I don't know. A mongrel is kind of like a derogatory term for a dog, isn't it? Just because you're that English, I don't mi- think you're a mongrel. A mixture. <laughs> Do you remember, you know the English comedian Eddie Izzard? Yeah. He, he did that series called Mongrel Nation. I don't know that one. I just um, know he did 24 marathons in 24 yeah. days. How bloody good is that? And campaigned against Scottish independence. Did he? Mm-hmm. Is he Scottish or English? English. So what, what did it have to do with him? Well, nothing, <laughs> which is the point. Uh, I love how Scottish J.K. Rowling is. Wasn't she like, she's as English as you can mm. get, isn't she? Lived in Edinburgh when she was writing Harry Potter. Yeah, but me, I wrote, I wrote my dissertation in Tokyo. <laughs> but um, I tell you what, I, I did a master's degree at the University of Exeter which is the alma mater of J.K. Rowling. And in the gardens of the department where I studied, 
there was a tree named after one of the Harry Potter houses. But that tree had had that name for many years, so she got the name for one of the Harry Potter houses from oh from the tree where she studied. Oh, so sorry, it was called studied. that before she. Wrote yeah, and it obviously stuck in her mind, and she used it. Right. What was it then? Slytherin. Hufflepuff. I, I, you know, I've never read Harry Potter. I've never, seen, I've never seen the movies. I. I've been to Universal Studios, and that's that's my exposure to Harry Potter. I was read the. Harry Potter books before I was At Christmas by your brother. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a long one, that, wasn't it? <laughs> and then Harry turned the princess into a frog. So, we've talked a bit about what Orwell means to us, how we came to Orwell. Simon, why should people read Orwell in the 21st century? This 20th century writer, why should we read him now? I don't think should's the right word. We you shouldn't read him. I mean, obviously, it's subjective. If you want to read him, if you think it's relevant to you, I can only say from our point of view, we strongly recommend that he is still relevant. And the impact he made on me as a young man, I'm just talking 10, 15 years ago, has really influenced who I, who I am as a person. I'm not saying I'm a good person in society but it what it has done is given me a purpose and I think if you have a purpose politically or socio-culturally in your life it can really give you meaning as to how you go about the way you are and I try it's debatable successfully to to go about my my days in a way which influences people around me in a good way and Orwell had a profound influence upon upon that. So, yeah, I guess I would just recommend people to find either him or another author, or in today's world, a podcast or a YouTuber this podcast. who has a an influence upon you which encourages you to go about your existence in a manner that adds to society in a positive way. And I know that's subjective and debatable, but if you are going about your days in a way which encourages equality, egality, et fraternity, bon chance. I would say much the same thing. Um, I would say that in the last, how long have we been doing this podcast, Simon? Two months? I, I don't know how often we publish. It could be a year, it could be a month. <laughs> In the last whatever it is that we've been doing this <laughs> podcast, I have come to see Orwell in a new light, and it is it has meant more and more each essay we've discussed, and Orwell just seems more and more relevant to the times we are living through. One of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast was because the word Orwellian has come to mean something very negative. It's come to mean... Yeah the taking away of freedom from the people by the government. But I think Orwellian means so much more. It means the enjoyment of what we said before when we were talking about the, uh, the life cycle of the toad, the enjoyment of the process of life. Yeah. It means 
recognizing the necessity of clear independent thought independent of ideology independent of the dogma of certain political blocks i think that's a very good point and i i'm very happy for us to play our very tiny part in the realignment of this adjective orwellian in the rediscovery of the meaning of that adjective and how it can be put into use in today's world. I think it's a very good point. One of my hopes for this podcast is that we have redefined, as Simon said, redefined the word Orwellian to me. Well, we're, we're, we're trying to contribute to the redefinition of the word. I don't think we are the, the word on redefinition of an adjective. That it becomes a positive thing. Orwellian... Uh, Oxford Dictionary hasn't been in touch. <laughs> but Orwellian, instead of meaning the, the subversion of personal freedom, Orwellian means the retention of personal freedom. Instead of the homogenization of culture for official purposes, Orwellian means the independence of human thought. Humanity. Humanity, humanity, humanity. That is what Orwellian means. So I think um, is going to be another, as we please, like the second part, very much a continuation from today. And we'll be discussing Orwell from a cultural perspective, very loosely. But um, in, in this series we're doing, as we please, I think the aim is to try to relate to a wider audience who... Because the thing about the essays is some people might be interested in one and not necessarily so interested in another. But in doing more of this As We Please series, we hope to reach out to people that have got in touch with us who want us to discuss various themes. And by no means are we claiming to be the oracle. And we're just giving forth our opinions and we very much encourage people to debate with us and add to what we're saying or disagree with what we're saying. There's, there's no problem with that at all. We are just two decently educated fellows trying to make sense of the world, aren't we, Simon? I'm bloody sexy, if I may say so. Anyway, do the closing thing. All right, everyone. Uh, thank you for listening. Orwell. Ends well. Yeah, 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 yeah.